Dear Lord, unless you speak, we perish. These dear people sitting before me need to hear beyond the voice of a mere man. Will you conduct that divine dialogue between our hearts and your spirit? We can face anything tomorrow, but we can't not hear your word today. The most pressing need of the hour is to hear your sweet whisper. Grant it, Father, that we may leave saying we've met with the Lord. And help me to preach as a dying man to dying men and women. To emphasize what a dying man would emphasize. And to give dying people what dying people need before they meet you. Father, help, my, help me to prepare my people to die. To die well. To die in hope. To die in Christ. This is my plea. Amen. I've titled this sermon, Again, because I'm anticipating you saying the word. I'm anticipating, I'm anticipating you saying the word twice. I'm anticipating you saying that word first with a bit of horror. Again? Then I'm anticipating you saying that word a second time with a bit of happiness. Again. They happen to coincide with how I'm breaking down this sermon. Reviewing Revelation 1 through 21, expositing Revelation 22. I'm going to spend about a quarter of our time reviewing chapters 1 through 21. <laughs> Kyle, you've got to be kidding me. Are you going to teach the entire book again? You've preached 23 sermons so far. And let's just be generous to you and say that they've only been an hour long apiece. That's 23 hours of material. I hear you. That's 23 hours of material that I will condense into 15 minutes. Reviewing Revelation 1 through 21. Again, a bit of horror. Expositing Revelation 22. You're going to say it at the end with a bit of happiness. Again. Because you get a sense of home while reading chapter 22. Like you're not where you're ultimately meant to be. Revelation 22 is home again. The first sermon in our series may have been the most important. Revelation and introduction. It was there that I wanted to emphasize the book of Revelation is within our grasp and for our benefit. Revelation is a very strange book. After all, it's filled with lions and lambs, angels and demons, horses and dragons, ghoulies and ghosties and long-legged beasties and things that go bump in the night. But God did not give us this book to confound us. It's not meant to confuse you or mystify you. God gave this book not to obscure but to unveil. From the jump, I wanted to inject you with confidence that you can understand this book. You were intimidated by this book because you had been exposed to poor exegesis from this book. But you found out this book is for you. 
Did you have to work at it a bit? Yes. Did you have to increase your vocab? Yes. Did you have to familiarize yourself with a unique genre? Yes. But you did it. It was reachable. It was attainable. You finally understand it. You get it. Once you knew the genre, that was 90% of the battle. Some of you new Christians had only been saved for three weeks when we started the book. You got it. You understood it. You children, you realize this book is not merely for adults. You grasped it. My goal was to get you to interpret the book of Revelation holding the Old Testament, not a newspaper. In fact, the first words of the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This word revelation in the Greek is apocalypse. It's used 18 other times in the New Testament. It means laying bare to reveal this gives the purpose of the book to uncover, to unveil someone. The purpose of the book is to reveal Jesus, not to spark eschatological debates or build underground bunkers. Church, isn't it ironic that the book of the Bible that means revealed, unveiled, open, is considered by some the most concealed, veiled, and closed book in the Bible? The title of this book is not the mystery of Jesus Christ or the puzzle of Jesus Christ, but the revealing of Jesus Christ. The entire book gathers around to exalt him. It shows that all things culminate in him. The writer is saying to you, I want you to meet Jesus. And we did. I gave you six guiding principles to help interpret the book. We've been putting those interpretive principles to work in each message. Then we moved to a human portrait and a divine portrait. In the human portrait, we saw John in his 80s exiled to a penal settlement. First century Alcatraz. He was banished to Patmos for preaching the gospel. Tertullian, who was born 50 years after John was on Alcatraz, said John was exiled after he was plunged in boiling oil. And it was while on this island that John received these visionary experiences. Just a stream of spectacular visions. But there wasn't only a human portrait, there was a divine portrait. We saw Jesus Christ walking among the seven golden lampstands. We were told that the lampstands were the seven churches to whom John was to write this letter. Jesus is walking around, trimming wicks, carving wax, breathing life back into the flickering flame. He's making sure the candles don't go out. He keeps his churches burning. The majestic Christ walks among his scattered churches. Then we entered the seven letters to the seven churches. They were real churches in real cities with real pastors and real members. We studied the heady church, the persecuted church, the compromising church, the tolerant church, the growing but dying church, the small church, and the lukewarm church. We were then elevated from earth to heaven and we beheld the throne of God. 
we witness the inestimable beauty and majesty of God the Father. Our next step on this apocalyptic journey led us to witness John weeping because God the Father held a scroll and none of the sinless angels were able to open it. Although they were sinless, they were not worthy. The first readers knew these scrolls well. Osborne said they were over 32 feet long. This scroll contained God's plan for history, God's unfolding redemptive purposes. It was sealed with seven seals. With no one to open the scroll, sin has no end. The prospect of sin never coming to an end wrecked John. The drama builds until John was told, weep no longer. The lamb is worthy to open the scroll. In the next exposition, we saw the lamb. With a slit throat, slit each seal in a measured pace. The seven seals tell the story of the end of the world and the beginning of God's kingdom. The seven trumpets tell the same story but from another perspective. The next two sections, they mirror one another. We had a colossal angel, a little scroll, and two witnesses. Then, a pregnant woman, a red dragon, and two beasts. This led us to a group of people who follow the lamb wherever he goes. A call to the seven local churches to persevere in faith, no matter what they may face in Asia Minor. Then we walked out the seven bowls. We experienced the wrath of God in fractions so far. In the seven seals, it was one-fourth of the world facing the wrath of God. In the seven trumpets, it was one-third of the world facing the wrath of God. The big message of the fractions is this. You still have time to repent. These are all partial judgments. They are all limited disasters. It's a bitter foretaste. Don't remain defiant in unbelief. Embrace this Christ. In the seven bowls, there are no more fractions. The wrath of God is completely expressed. Then in chapter 17 and 18, we saw Rome, the empire. Rome, where these churches were located, symbolically pictured first as a prostitute, then as a city. And the lesson is clear. These seven churches, and by implication us, are living in the spiritual red-like district. There are two women juxtaposed in Revelation. Christ's woman and Satan's woman. The bride of Christ and the prostitute of Babylon. The prostitute is dressed in purple and scarlet. The bride is dressed in white. The prostitute focuses on outward beauty. The bride focuses on inward beauty. The prostitute drinks a cup filled with the blood of saints. The bride drinks the cup of the New Testament. The prostitute is destined for hell. The bride is destined for heaven. The prostitute is drunk and seductive. The bride is sober and chaste. The prostitute receives wrath, but the bride receives mercy. In chapter 17, it was the tale of two women. In chapter 18, it's the tale of two cities. Babylon and New Jerusalem. One is Satan's city and the other is God's city. In chapter 19, there's a wedding. God takes his bride. 
But there's not just a wedding in heaven. There's a wedding supper. Jesus said, while on earth, he will not drink the fruit of the vine until he drinks it new with us in the kingdom. This is the kingdom. Jesus is back at the table with his bride. When we do the Lord's Supper, it's a look into the future. It's an appetizer. It's a dress rehearsal for a wedding feast in heaven. The rider on the white horse. I illustrated this by riding a white horse in here. No, I didn't. Some of you are like, man, I missed that one. Uh, other pastors have done that. I chose not to do that. The, the point of this vision was that no one can frustrate the battle plan of the rider on the white horse. The rider on the white horse first came as gentle and lowly, but he will return as violent and lofty. It's symbolic of Christ's final judgment. Then in chapter 20, that was a, that was a millennial maze. I took 2,000 years of church debate and settled it. <laughs> Last week... We covered the new heaven and the new earth. And my, that was, that was glorious. The problem with some churches that do expository preaching, like us, is that they tend to miss the forest for the trees. They're so zoomed in that they never zoom out. They, they investigate and evaluate each tree and then each branch and look at each leaf with a microscope, but they end up missing the big picture. And what I want you to see right now is the Revelation forest. The Revelation forest. The structure of Revelation is laid out in seven sevens. Chapter one is a prologue. Chapter 2 and 3 deal with seven churches. Chapter 4 and 5 are an interlude. Chapter 6 deals with seven seals. Chapter 7 is another interlude. Chapter 8 and 9 give us seven trumpets. Chapter 10 and 11 is the third interlude. Chapter 12 through 14 are seven signs. Chapter 15 is the fourth interlude. Chapter 16 gives us seven bowls. Chapter 17 and 18, our final interlude. Chapter 19 and 20, seven visions. Then something unique happens. The pattern is broken. There is no interlude. We just go straight into the final seven, the final Sabbath. That's what chapters 21 and 22 are. The final Sabbath, the final rest. Anything numerical in Revelation is not an accident. We finished reviewing Revelation 1 through 21. Now, expositing Revelation 22. Revelation 22 is clearly, clearly broken down into two parts. Verses 1 through 5 form a unit. And verses 6 through 21 form a unit. In this chapter... There are two things that have already happened and are going to happen again. Let me, let me say that again. I want to repeat it. In this chapter, there are two things that have already happened and they are going to happen again. They will both leave you saying with a bit of happiness, 
again. I'm going to do something a bit different today. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 and stop as I read and give sort of a running commentary. I'll circle back around and fill in this first blank. Verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. God the Father and God the Son are on the throne. This is the first time in Revelation we've seen it exactly this way. They reign in perfect equality and unity because they are one. Cascading down from the throne is a river. This is no ordinary river. It's unsullied by pollutants. It rushes with life-giving water. As John recounts, he adds layers of colors and textures to this scene. Verse 2. Through the middle of the street of the city. So this throne is in the middle of the city. This is New Jerusalem. This is the new earth as a city. This throne is on the new earth. This river flows through the city, but doesn't leave the city. The river is not located in some back alley of New Jerusalem. It's running through the central street. The original readers are familiar with central streets. Most ancient cities had a central street. In fact, uh, two of the churches that were addressed, Ephesus and Pergamum, they had a central thoroughfare that went through them. These were wide streets, not narrow alleys. The river is flowing down the middle of this great boulevard. Verse 2 continues, Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The tree of life seems to be on both sides of the river. (laughs) How can one tree be on both sides? It's apocalyptic literature. Maybe the river is lined with many trees of life. The tree of life has become multiple trees of life. Questions on if this is one tree or many trees escape us, but what doesn't escape us is the fruit. It produces 12 kinds of fruit each month. This isn't just a row of trees. This is an orchard. An orchard where every tree, where, where every tree is always ripe. Where every tree produces 12 kinds of fruit. Have you ever seen anything like this? The fruit is always in season and it never spoils. How can one tree produce apples, oranges, mangoes, lemons, pears, plums, cherries, peaches, figs, grapefruits, kiwis, and bananas all at once? I took a guess on the 12 fruits, but it's likely an innumerable number of fruits because we again come across the number 12. Most trees produce fruit one or two times a year. This one never experiences a bear season. It's just fruited all the time. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. All throughout the Bible, all throughout the Bible, we see nations at war. 
all throughout our world, we see nations at war. All throughout history, we see nations at war. But on the new earth, we see nations at worship. But you may ask, are they recovering from war? Because it says the leaves of the tree of life give them healing. Why do nations need healing on the new earth? Do people get sick? Do they have stomach aches? Do they get sunburn and need aloe from the leaves? No! This is apocalyptic literature. John wasn't telling us, hey, there's going to be sickness on the new earth, but don't worry, the pharmacy is in the leaves. This is, some, this is a symbolic reminder that there is no sickness or pain in eternity. No pain on the new earth. It's speaking of the eternal spiritual vitality humans will have there. This city with the river running through it is not a concrete jungle. Trees, fruit, leaves, lush vegetation. This is a garden city. Verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. The old earth is fallen. That's true. But it's passive. Let's bring it active. The old earth is cursed. It's under a curse. These seven churches are living on a cursed earth. But soon they will live on a new earth with no curse. The curse will be finished forever. It will be finished because Jesus took the curse for us on the cross. The servants will worship God. <laughs> That's you. Believers, you will worship. However, that is not the best translation. It is better like this. His servants will serve him. The word translated worship in the Greek means work. Work. We will work on the new earth. This work will be fun and fulfilling. We will never idolize this work or dread it. Work not driven by power or pride. Work that will not give you an ulcer or cause you anxiety. New earth work. Verse 4. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. To see the face of God was a privilege denied to Moses. But it's allowed here. You can never see the face of God and live. A common theme on the old earth. It will be done away with on the new earth. Seeing his face is a deadly danger to us because we are defiled by sin. But this verse sets us on a trajectory. One day we will not be defiled by sin any longer. The day is coming when we will no longer worship God in a place made with hands. We will worship him face to face. 
freed from sin, and now able to behold God's face, the face of our Father. We move from God's face to our face. We have a name written on our forehead. And you're like, Kyle, this is, this is bad news to me. I went my entire life on earth avoiding getting a face tattoo. And, and now you're telling me I'm going to have one on the new earth? No, this is symbolic. We've seen this before in our study of Revelation. The name on the forehead speaks of ownership. We belong to him. We are his eternal possession. He sealed us and protected us and brought us to the new earth. He brought us to the river with water of life. He brought us to the tree of life. Okay, now let's step back from these five verses and look at the big picture. What do we have here? This is when God gets the world exactly like he wants it. It's a garden and a city. It's a garden city. Have we ever seen a river going through the middle of a garden before? Where have we previously seen this tree of life? Where is the first mention of the river and the tree in Scripture? Eden. This is a reconstitution of the Garden of Eden. A return to Eden. It's Eden again. Because of Adam's sin, we were expelled from the Garden City. Expelled from Eden. After Adam's sin, he was placed outside Eden, which was guarded by angels, remember this, holding flaming swords. He was barred from the tree of life, barred from eating its fruits. But God will restore humanity's access to the tree of life. Paradise lost, paradise restored. A renewal of walking with God in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve sinned, and because of that, we ran from God. Jesus lived sinlessly, and because of that, we now will run to God, to his face. Never again will fellowship between God and his people be interrupted. There are two Edens, one at the beginning of history, and one at the end. God bookends history with Eden. Human history began in a garden with a river flowing through it and a tree of life. And it will end in a garden with a river flowing through it and a tree of life. Eden again. At the first Eden, God placed angels at the gate, gatekeepers to guard the entrance. At the final Eden, there are gates, 12 of them. Remember last week? Who stands at the gates? Is it Peter? Peter isn't the gatekeeper. He's an inhabitant. He's not forever relegated to standing at the gate with a clipboard. Angels. It was angels. Angels at the gate of the first Eden and angels at the gate of the final Eden. Angels kept man and woman from entering the first garden 
angels will welcome men and women to enter the final garden. Human history begins and ends in Eden. That's why, some of you readers, that's why J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Hobbit, begins and ends in the Shire. There are adventures in between, but always back to the Shire. Same is true here. We begin and end at the same place, Eden. God not only brackets history with Eden, but God brackets the Bible with Edens. Genesis, heaven and earth created. Revelation, new heaven and new earth recreated. Genesis, sin entered history. Revelation, sin exits history. Genesis, the curse appears. Revelation, the curse disappears. A curseless creation, liberated from the bondage of de decay. Genesis, the entrance of death. Revelation, the defeat of death. Genesis, man driven from paradise. Revelation, man restored to paradise. Genesis, loss of God's face. Revelation, gain of God's face. In Genesis, there was an Eden sign that said, keep out. In Revelation, there's an Eden sign that says, come in. The last chapter of the Bible surprisingly looks like the first chapters in the Bible. This is the begin ending. You know, there was a, you know, there was a wedding in the first garden. And a wedding in the final garden. There was a bride in the first Eden and a bride in the final Eden. The entire Bible is an inclusio. That's, that's what you call it in Hebrew literature. I call it a sandwich. God sandwiches the Bible with Edens. Eating one tree brought the curse. Eating another tree brings healing. So Kyle, there's just two Edens, right? One at the beginning and... Then another Eden at the end? Well, not exactly. There's an Eden in the middle as well. The Old Testament temple was designed to be a replica of the garden. Walls were to be covered with things to make it look like a garden. Wood carvings gave it a, a garden-like ambiance. Carvings of flowers. Remember the lampstand in the temple? It looked like a tree. The tree of life. Why did God design the temple to look like Eden? Why create the imagery of the garden? Because the garden of Eden was the original temple. And God gave his people a little taste of what was coming. It served as a model. Now, before we move on, let me give you two Eden truths. Two Eden truths. Eden truth number one. There's only one way back to Eden. That's through Christ, the second Adam. There's only one way back to Eden. That's through Christ, the second Adam. We were kicked out of Eden. And there's only one way back. 
the first Adam got us expelled, the second Adam will gain us entrance. This is creation recapitulated. What the first Adam failed to do, keep us in Eden, the second Adam will succeed in doing. The first Adam ruined Eden. The second Adam restores Eden. The first Adam fell and lost our souls. The second Adam died and won our souls. Everywhere Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. He rescued you from Adam's fall. He's the second Adam. Eden truth number two. Unlike the first Eden, the final Eden will have no potential of sin entering. The serpent slithering into the garden will never happen again. The final Eden is not vulnerable. Now, at this moment, we live east of Eden. <laughs> I don't have to tell you that. We don't live in paradise. All you have to do is look around and see that. But we are headed back home. We are headed back to Eden. Eden again. Now, there's a transition in verse 7. Jesus is speaking, and he says, And behold, I am coming soon. Let's stop there. Eden again, I'm coming again. Jesus says, I'm coming speedily. This is his anytime return. He says three times in verse 7, in verse 12, and verse 20, I am coming soon. The next eschatological event is the second coming of Christ. This Christ coming again. On his daily planner, it's Saturday. An eternal Sunday is coming. Peter, a first century follower of Christ, he said, he told us people will mock you for saying that he's coming. It's been a very long time. And maybe we Christians should be embarrassed by this. It has been 2,000 years since Jesus said this. And some of you are like, yeah, Kyle, I mean, you admitted it. Kyle, I, I'm educated just like you. A delay of several thousand years, would it not override sound exegesis? Augustine said, there is no human analogy for the divine sense of time. To God who lives in eternity, the word soon has a different length than us whose life is a vapor. This coming soon does not necessarily mean he will come in the next minute or the next month, but that there is nothing left in God's unfolding redemptive plan that needs to happen in order for Jesus to come back. The last act in the drama is Christ again coming. It's the any momentness of his coming. Let's continue verse 7. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. 
Church, when Jesus taught eschatology, the goal was always ethics. It's a call to obey, to live holy. The purpose of eschatology, the goal is always ethics. The purpose of eschatology was never to lead you toward wild, crazy speculation. It was to lead you toward sanctification. See, the book of Revelation doesn't make you fanatical. It makes you faithful. Do you see how our generation and the two before us have missed it? They have looked at the book of Revelation as something to know and figure out and not something to obey. Eschatology should not make the head fat, but the heart holy. Every portion of, of the Bible is aimed for life change. Whenever the Bible talks about what theologians call eschatology in times, its concern is ethics. It concerns your behavior. Eschatology makes you holy, not haughty. It's always practical. It's always designed to teach us how we are to live here and now. Now let's put our, put our eyes on the words of God again in verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. In my mind, he saw a lot. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of, what? And of the angel who showed them to me? But he, the angel, said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. I love this. John, in humility, again, records his stupidity. He falls and worships the angel who reveals the vision to him. And this is the second time he's done it. This is an important reminder. You need to distinguish between those who deliver the message and the one who authored it. The angel says, worship God. Church, this is the purpose for which you were created. This is your end. This is the goal of your existence. Worship God. Verse 10, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. God revealed some things to prophets in the Old Testament and told them not to share it with anyone. It was just for their own encouragement. That is not the case here. Do not seal it up. Share it. Circulate this immediately. Make it known. Even earlier in this book, John was told to seal up the seven thunders. But do not seal this up. Verse 11. Let the evildoer still do evil. And the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right. And the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. 
Let thee is repeated four times in this verse. Let the evildoer still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous still do right. Let the holy still be holy. Jesus says, those who spit on the gospel, let them continue spitting on the gospel. Those who mock the truth, let them continue to mock the truth. I'm coming to make all things right. I'm coming to put death to death, to mock the mockers, and levy out due judgment. You righteous, you seven churches, maintain a straight course. Keep being faithful in a wicked society. I'm on my way. I will be there soon. And I'm bringing payroll with me. He's bringing rewards for believers and judgment for non-believers. Verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. <laughs> we have another wraparound here. Jesus said the same thing in chapter 1. The first chapter of Revelation and the last chapter of Revelation, he says, I am Alpha and Omega. This is the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. I'm A to Z. The source of all things and the end goal of all things. Just as Jesus did when he walked on the earth, he's making an outright claim to deity. Jesus gives himself three bipolar names. Now, you may have a different usage for the word bipolar. Use my definition here. Bipolar is everything that lies between two poles. Alpha, omega, two poles. First, last, two poles. Beginning, end, two poles. Jesus is the totality of all that lies in between. These three titles illustrate that he's the creator of human history and the consummator of human history. Verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. This is the last of the Beatitudes in the book. Guess how many Beatitudes? Seven. You, you've heard Beatitudes in Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The first beatitude was found in Revelation chapter 1, and the final, seventh beatitude is found in Revelation chapter 22. Blessed are those who wash their robes. This implies all humans have a dirty robe that needs to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Blessed are those who have washed in that fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. They they enter through the gates. Verse 15. Outside, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, I don't want to scare some of you children. It says here, there will be no dogs on the new earth. And I've been telling you for years, there'll be no cats in heaven, but here it says no dogs. I did a little in-depth study of the word dogs. 
if you translate it from Greek into Aramaic and then transliterate it into Hebrew and then reverse it back into Latin, you know what it spells backwards? Feline. <laughs> Can you believe that? That settles it. No cats on the new earth. They came about as a result of the fall. Sarah and I, <laughs> we saw where 47 cats were rescued from a vehicle in Minneapolis. The person was still in the car at a rest stop on a road trip. All the cats were fine, so was the person driving. They gave his name. What, what was that? Lucifer. <laughs> Lucifer. <laughs> All right, children, this, this word dog is actually used as a metaphor. Dogs were not domesticated house pets in antiquity. They were unwelcome scavengers. It's a metaphor for the wicked. This is nothing about animals here. But this vice list is interesting. There are seven categories of sinners listed. He never uses seven by accident. To be outside of Eden is akin to outer darkness. It's the lake of fire. It's hell. They're outside the camp. Everyone outside Eden will go to hell unless the second Adam brings them in. Some of you, you think, you really think you're going into Eden. And you're not. You're, you're among this imperfectly perfect group of seven. You're around Christians. You sit under the word. You know the lingo. But you have people fooled. And you know you're not one of his. Stop playing games. Repent and believe this Christ. Submit to him as Lord and don't be left outside. Verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Jesus gives himself three other self-titles. Uh, the first is Jesus. <laughs> In one of the seminaries I went to, the president used to say, never refer to Christ by only using the name Jesus. Say Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus, but never just Jesus. He thought it came from the informality of the 60s and 70s, that, that hippie generation, I guess. Never refer to him as Jesus. Why? He did. I, Jesus. The second self-title is the root and descendant of David. He's saying, I was born into the family of King David, which was an Old Testament requirement for the coming Messiah. I, I'm, the, I'm the shoot that sprang forth from the root. So he, he's, he's the shoot, but he's also the root. The root of David. David came out of Jesus. He's before David and after David. Jesus says, I predate David and I was born into David's family. Both are true. The creator of David and the descendant from David. Is the Messiah David's son or is he David's Lord? Yes. Both. The third self-title, Bright and Morning Star. All right, my students, my Revelation students, 
the morning star, remember that? It was a reward that was promised to the church at Thyatira in chapter 2. Jesus is the reward. A singular brilliance that outshines other luminaries. You could call the bright and morning star Jesus' last name. Because it's the last name he gives himself in the Bible. Each of the seven churches were promised rewards. One of them was the morning star. Another was the tree of life. All those rewards are found in the last two chapters of the book. Verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. There are four commands in this verse, all imperatives in the Greek. They all say the same thing, come. And church, let me just shoot straight with you. I'm not totally sure what is happening in this verse. Some think the first part is a prayer addressed to Christ. And then the second part is a plea addressed to sinners. It looked like this. The Holy Spirit and the church, the bride, are saying to Christ, come. Then it's a plea to sinners, the thirsty, to come to Jesus and drink of his salvation. It's without price. It's without price. It costs you nothing. That could be the case. Or it could be all to non-Christians. Come, weary sinners. It's an urgent appeal. Jesus ends the book in an invitation. The closing note of the Bible is come to Christ and be saved. Or it could be to all Christians. God is the ultimate quench. He's what your soul has always thirsted for. I'll leave it to you for homework. Verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. There's a warning here that you should not change the content of this book. Alter its message. There's a warning against addition and a warning against omission. Don't tamper with the text. If you add, God adds. If you subtract, God subtracts. I don't think John penned these words with the entire 66 books of the Bible in mind. I think he penned it with this book in mind. This is often used as referring to the whole Bible, but I think only Revelation is in view here. The principle for the whole Bible, of course, stands, but that's not the intent of this verse. Deuteronomy 4.2, Deuteronomy 12.32, they, they give the same warning. I think John is concerned about careless copying. You can alter the message willfully or just copy it carelessly and it would distort the message. They copied manuscripts. Gutenberg didn't have the printing press yet. Everything was by hand. Bad editors, sloppy in their work. They existed. This is not talking about making errors in judgment or mistakenly interpreting scripture wrongly. Lots of people have done that with the book of Revelation. This is different. What happens to those who do not handle the book rightly? Those who purposefully distort the book 
How could you purposefully distort revelation? Those who use the words for their own ends. God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city. Now, this does not mean you can lose your salvation. You can't be unborn when you've been born, born again. You can't be unjustified when you've been justified. You can't undo the new life that was wrought within you. It's saying it's a very serious offense to tamper with revelation. And if you do it, it reveals you were never a believer to begin with. Verse 20. We're about to land this plane. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus speaks and we respond. He says, surely I am coming soon. We say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. It's responsive in form designed to provoke a reaction. This is one of the earliest confessions of the church, the oldest creed. How do we end this book? How do we end Revelation? We end it by responding to Jesus' promise. What he did before, he will do again. Revelation 22, summarized in one word, again. Eden again. Amen. Do it again, dear Lord. I'm coming again. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's stand and pray. Father, you will finish this inclusio. You will finish the sandwich. You began with Eden and you will end with Eden. You sent your son the first time and you will send him again. While we wait, we work. While we wait, we worship. While we wait, we cling to the again promises.